0: You're listening to In Conversation from the Educational Freedom Institute.
1: Cool, we're still in lockdown, but we're still continuing the Educational Freedom Institute podcast, live video interviews each week. I'm super excited that we have Phil Magnus, one of the best researchers on school choice and segregation and tackling the myth that somehow school choice segregates communities um, almost as if you know, we don't have any segregation in government schools today. Um, so Phil Magnus is going to talk a lot about that today. He's written a lot of extensive articles on this, and uh, he has a really good one in the Journal of School Choice that was published, I believe, uh, last year in 2019, where he reviews a lot of this evidence on this topic and then just goes over the history. He goes over... Um, you know, just the theoretical arguments and some of the fallacies behind the argument and the myth that school choice somehow leads to more segregation. So again, you know, we're, we're waiting for people to hop on. I want to make sure everybody knows uh, I'm streaming this on five different platforms. It's on my personal Facebook account. I just hit the 5,000 friend limit yesterday. It kind of sucks, but (laughs) you know what? If you follow me, you can still message me. I have all my messages open, so it doesn't really matter. I don't don't know why they have that friend limit, but it doesn't really matter because I interact with anyone anyways. But it's also streaming on the Educational Freedom Institute Facebook, the Educational Freedom Institute YouTube channel, my personal YouTube channel, and my personal Twitter feed as well. And I want to let everyone know, as usual, we would like to incorporate your comments uh, on the discussion or any questions you might have for our special guest, Phil Magnus or or Matthew or myself. And we'll be able to uh, feature your comments at the very bottom of the screen. Make sure the comments aren't too long because then they'll they'll cover up Phil Magnus's face and we don't want to do that. Try to be quick <laughs> and we'll try to get to your comments and feature them at the bottom. So make sure you're engaging with us. You know, we like to talk to, to ourselves a lot. And we like to talk to each other a lot, but we also like to include audience members in the discussion as well. Um, so that we, you know, so we can keep you guys engaged and, uh, yeah, I mean, looks like we have a good amount of people, um, tuned in right now on the live stream on, on these five different channels as just another quick reminder, please share your comments with us at the very bottom of the screen. Uh, so that you can interact with us and our special guest, Phil Magnus, today. Um, and yeah, without further ado, Matthew, can you take us away and go into some formal introductions?
2: Yeah, so before I before I jump into that, I want one more announcement, Corey. Uh, I want to make sure that everyone knows that EFI published this morning uh, its latest working paper, and it's on homeschooling it's by an individual named Rafe Hawkins. It's a really cool, uh, really well-written working paper. So go to EFI or or to our website, it's efinstitute.org slash working papers. And that's our second one that we posted. The first one, uh, was by Kevin Curry Knight. And so we've got two up there now. So, um, Let's jump into introductions. My name is Matt Nielsen, Matthew Nielsen. I'm with uh, EFI Educational Freedom Institute. I'm the board chair. There it is. There we go. First one and the second one that's tentative epiphanies. Um, It's a cool working paper. It's really well written. So go check that out. It's free download. So um, when you get a minute, go download that and give it a read. Uh, Our uh, (laughs) lost my train of thought. So Corey, we have Corey and he's the executive director at EFI. He's also the director of school choice at the Reason Foundation and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Our special guest today is Phil Magnus and we appreciate you coming on today, Phil. Um, Yeah. So Phil is the senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. He's an author of many works on economic history, taxation, economic inequality, history of slavery, and education policy in the United States. So thanks again, Phil, for joining us. Well, thanks for having me.
1: And one more thing before you jump into the first question, uh, while we're getting on introductions of Phil, he actually did a chapter in our forthcoming book, uh, which I co-edited with uh, Neil McCluskey coming out at the Cato Institute in October of this year. Sorry, I'm covering up your face for a second, Phil, even though you're featured in the book, but this book is called school School choice myths, uh, (laughs) setting the setting the record straight on education freedom. And Phil has a really great chapter in here where again, he takes on this myth that school choice has racist origins or that school choice segregates society. Uh, so we're going to talk about, you know, a little bit of his chapter today and, and some of his work on, on that, on that topic.
2: And I'll, last thing, before I jump into the first question, this is our 10th podcast. So Phil, this is a special designation here. You are number All 10. Right. <laughs> um, and this might, this is probably our last podcast where Corey's wearing that headset.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness!
2: Got <laughs> a new
0: one. Away. <laughs> I, I've
1: got. I have this. It's all set up and ready to go. But I can pretend like I'm talking into this thing. It would make <laughs> it look more official. But I don't have the one piece yep. that allows me to use it. So next time, next time.
2: Yep, next time <laughs> he'll be all set up. Okay, so uh, we're going to jump into our topic now, Phil and. um, we like to make this a conversation more than an interrogation so we're gonna i'm gonna start with a couple of questions and we're just gonna go where it leads us but tell us uh, a little about yourself phil and what got you interested in education generally
0: yeah so i'm an economic historian which uh means i mostly study uh income data and tax policy and things like that. So numbers uh, across U.S. history. But I've always had a a side interest in education policy going all the way back to uh, to graduate school. I was originally interested in the economic dimensions of higher ed, how the universities work. And that has also uh, spilled over into the economic dimensions of what I call lower ed, uh, the K through 12 and seeing how competitive mechanisms operate in both of them. Uh, So one thing kind of leads to another and just being historically minded, I've uh, dug pretty deep into uh, the past of both of those issues.
2: Cool. Good. And uh, you're, you've written about it, obviously you have a chapter in Corey's book. Um, Tell us what, what is the history behind school choice and, and government schools and segregation? What, maybe just a brief overview of what you've learned.
0: Yeah. So the general claim that's put, put forth, this is really kicked up among school choice opponents. And I'd say the past five to 10 years. And what they do is they point out that uh, Brown versus board of education, which happened in 1954 coincides with uh, some of the modern early events of the school choice movement, uh, particularly Milton Friedman's article, uh, laying out the theory behind school choice, which came out in 1955, it also uh, coincided with uh, educational upheaval in the Southern United States in the wake of Brown versus Board. As several states adopted strategies to either close down their school system or try to keep African American students from. Uh, integrating under court orders from uh, historically white schools. So uh, there have been a a flurry of these uh, think pieces, some of them are articles, some of it spilled over into the academic literature that asserts that school choice has racist origins in uh, the history of segregation and because of that school choice is forever tainted by segregationist uh, material that was built into its uh, its origin story it's got a a, a tainted dna if you'd, uh, uh, you you want to use some of the more extreme analogies and therefore school choice today is something of a product of segregation there was even a recent book uh, by Steve Suits that I'm uh, just recently uh reviewed where the title of it is Overturning Brown versus Board of Education. So we cease claiming that uh this um, origin story is something that we should still deploy today to uh to attack uh school vouchers where they do exist.
1: Hmm. So interesting. So have you seen that Center for American Progress article that I that I brought up, the racist oh, yes. <laughs> I don't that, know if yeah. you've I shared this on Twitter and I tried to look it up just now, but I don't remember off the top of my head where this is from. But in one school district, I think it was Philadelphia School District, actually, they actually assigned this as a required reading. And if you went on to their online, you know, reading materials for the class, uh, I think it was, you know, American history or something. The only things that they had about school choice were all negative things. So they they talked about the racist origins of of private school vouchers, but they didn't cite any of your work uh, saying the opposite. Um, For example, this one right here, a peer reviewed journal article in the journal of school choice, school vouchers, segregation and consumer sovereignty in there. And so like if that school district in Philadelphia, I think it was Philadelphia school district um, assigned you know, the racist origins of, of school vouchers from the center for American progress. I wouldn't have any problem with that as long as they provided a counter view, like, like, like your take on the issue or, or Milton Friedman's take on the issue and, or, you know, more, more recent, uh, articles on the issue. So I think, yeah, I mean, that, that was irritated a lot of people on, on Twitter, at least, um, (laughs) just highlighting the political indoctrination that, that goes on in, in our schools, you know that that there's just one side of the issue being presented. So, Phil, what what is your take on the issue? Maybe go yeah. over yeah, maybe yeah. go over your response to that cap article and highlight some of the arguments you made in your Journal of School Choice article, or even uh, the the book chapter that's
0: coming yeah. out. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about all these articles is that they're actually really bad history. I mean, tendentiously argued one-sidedness that uh, misinterprets evidence and then also ignores and excludes evidence that runs against it. So uh, what I do in, in my work, and I've, uh, I've built this out both in the article that you highlighted and then the uh, the forthcoming book chapter, is look into the intellectual origins of school choice. And right off the bat, we see that this origin story that the other side is giving is completely false. Uh, in, in fact, they are late to the game by as much as 150 years, if not longer. We can find the origins of school choice theory. They're laid out in the work of Adam Smith, who's writing in the late 1700s. They're laid out in the work of Thomas Paine, uh, who's also an anti-slavery guy, uh, as most of these, these figures are. Uh, Paine is writing right around the turn of the, uh, the 19th century. So this is 150 years prior to Brown versus Board. Uh, at the mid-19th century, John Stuart Mill is probably the most explicit uh, precursor that lays out a theory of school competition and school choice. And this is really the tradition that Milton Friedman's building on a 100 years later. So uh, you have this, this deep history that's just completely omitted from these types of articles. And they do it with a reason because they want to recast the origin story uh, in connection with this event that everyone almost universally condemns today uh, for good reason, and that is racial segregation. But um, it just just exploring the history of the concept itself is enough to debunk this as an origin story. So the second thing they do, uh, they may say, OK, well, yeah, John Stuart Mill laid this out. And we know John Stuart Mill was an anti-slavery guy, a good classical liberal who was uh, for his, his time and day very advanced and very enlightened on racial issues compared to his contemporaries. But they'll jump forward and say, well, what about the 1950s? We can still attack Milton Friedman because he raised this issue in the wake of Brown versus Board. And that was a time when the southern states were going to exploit uh, uh, the closure of schools uh, to try and exclude black children from uh, previously white institutions. Uh, So first thing uh, we want to look at that, uh, that type of an argument is to Friedman's own papers himself. Uh, to see if he was aware of Brown versus Ford, uh, see if he was aware of the the way that desegregation was playing out. Some of these tactics that were being used um, in the Southern states to block court ordered integration. And he absolutely is aware of it. In fact, in the article itself, the original article from 1955, he has an extended footnote that talks about the new Supreme court decision and asks the question, what's going on in the Southern states and what would happen if they took my policy idea and abused it and applied it toward segregationist ends. And he walks through the logic of that in the footnote and then expands it in some later works. And the gist of it is, he says, first, if we knew that this was going to reinforce segregation, uh, he personally would have no doubt in his mind that the, uh, the, the course of court ordered integration is the far preferable policy. Uh, that He he basically says, yes, I would denounce school vouchers if if uh, evidence came forward that this was reinforcing segregation. He says that is the greater evil here. Uh, but he makes another argument. And the other argument uh, says that if we introduce competition itself, regardless of what the segregationists want from it, competition in schools will lead in a direction that undermines segregation in the long term. And he's drawing on one of his doctoral students, Gary Becker's work. Uh, Becker is a uh, an economist coming out of the University of Chicago. Uh, he actually graduates in 1957 and writes a book on the, uh, the economics of discrimination. And one of Becker's arguments is if you take away entry barriers and all these regulatory mechanisms uh, to economic activity and uh, basically widen up competition in any economic sphere, one of the effects of that barring uh, like a disproportionate presence of a discriminatory or prejudicial belief uh, will be that the competition induces a movement toward greater integration of that business or uh, that public space uh, basically anything that has suffered under a regulatory imposition of segregation can benefit from from competition under the right conditions and friedman's taking this argument says well let's apply it to schools what happens in schools uh, let's say that we uh, we open up a voucher type system and encourage schools to compete against each other. Uh, well, through the force of moral suasion, we can attack segregation and prop up institutions that choose to integrate or choose to accept both black and white students or choose to accept Hispanic students. We, we got to remember they were discriminated against as well in in, um, in California. Till uh, the, the late 1940s, right before Brown versus Board, mm-hmm. uh, there, there's all sorts of racial discrimination on different lines. And one of the interesting things out of the California case uh, that emerges in, in 1947, it's the school voucher proponents that are arguing for school integration in California. They're saying, this is a way that we could overcome the fact that uh, the city of Santa Ana separates Hispanic Americans and white Americans. Uh,
1: hmm. from so. Well, it, and And Milton Friedman was right, right? If we look at the evidence today, you know if you allow students to access private schools through a school voucher program, almost all of the evidence on this suggests that private school choice at least leads to more racial integration because it allows students to leave racially segregated government-run schools. Yeah. And so it looks like Friedman was right just to blow it up for the listeners real quick. Here's a full screen. Um, You can also find this at my blog at the Cato Institute. If you just type in into Google, does school choice segregate with a question mark? And then also type in Cato Institute or Corey DeAngelis, you'll find uh, links to these studies. But most of the and Phil Magnus has cited these in his peer reviewed journal article in the Journal of School Choice as well. That school choice actually does lead uh, to, to racial integration. Uh, Phil, I've cited a lot of your tweets um, in the past. I, I haven't seen one lately, but you've you've pointed to articles where segregationists in the 1950s actually explicitly said either in newspaper articles or otherwise that they opposed private school voucher programs because they they didn't want racial integration in schools.
0: Do you, right. you have any of
1: those quotes off the top of your head? or No. Yeah, uh, so the, the,
0: the, the background history of this is just fascinating. This is what's omitted from all of these, these works that are coming from the anti-school choice crowd. Uh, the, 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 there is actually a segregationist history of opposing vouchers in the 1950s. Uh, so the backstory here is after brown versus board several southern states that are in control of, uh, by the segregationists decide that they're going to close their public school systems as a way of keeping black kids out of white schools after um, the courts have ordered them integrated they say well basically we'll uh, we'll shut down the whole system entirely therefore the court cannot order us to take black students uh, they can't order us to, uh, uh, to to violate segregation if we don't have a school system that's public. Uh, so one of the strategies that emerges in the wake of this um, is they they start offering tuition grants to. Uh, private schools sometimes they even set up the, the, like the county would subsidize a private and they call it a segregation academy only for the white students to attend so it's privately run but taxpayer money's dumped into it it's not really school choice because there's only one school in the county uh that's the segregation academy uh even though it's receiving public funding mm-hmm. it's just supplanting the old high school that they shut down because they don't want uh, integration at that high school so this this type of a policy takes off across the south uh, the real uh, uh, center of it all is the state of Virginia, uh, that they have the most uh, developed uh, policies in this direction. And it's announced with Senator Harry Fred Byrd, uh, uh, senior of the state. He, he, uh, he gives a famous speech where he calls on Virginians and the rest of the South to engage in what he says, massive resistance to Brown versus Board massive resistance to school integration. And one of the things we do to enact massive resistance is we shut down our public schools and re-siphon that money over into privately operated, but publicly funded institutions. Uh, You can imagine how this plays out politically uh, it, it actually kind of backfires against Bird because it takes all the moderate uh, parents and stuff in the state of Virginia that suddenly see their kids are being shut out of school and and, and stuff basically into uh, uh, garages and basements where they were running some of these private academies. Uh, so it's a real mess of a uh, a system that disrupts public life. Uh, and that causes a lot of uh, Virginians that were kind of sitting on the fence, uh, mostly suburbanites, uh Um, upper middle class, middle class uh, uh, type voters, where they start to backlash against uh, Byrd's political machine. So one of the fissures that emerges in the late uh, 1950s is a group of moderates, both on the segregationist side and on the integrationist side, come together and they say, well, uh, we're going to offer another uh, policy to, uh, to to kind of flank this massive resistance movement that Bird has enacted. And that is what we'll have race neutral tuition grants that will enact in the state of Virginia. And uh, because they're barred by federal law for making this race specific. And the idea here is that any student that wants to apply for a tuition grant can basically use that as a voucher at both a public or private school. But this means the public schools have to be reopened. Yeah. Um, so, that really irritates the bird faction, the hardline segregationists, and they fight this off, but they lose in the legislature in, in 1959. Uh, so it's, uh, it's both moderate segregationists and moderate integrationists come together and outflank and beat the hardline radical segregationists when this policy is enacted. Uh, so, even- so
1: let's take a step back real quick for the listeners, just ba- just to get a little of a a sense of your definition of segregation and maybe how that difference that differs from something like stratification, Uh, because although the private school choice literature shows that access to private school vouchers tends to lead to more racial integration in schools and socioeconomic integration as well. There are some instances of some locations where public charter schools actually have a higher proportion of, uh, minority students in them. And I'll just pull up a tweet real quick as an example. In Pennsylvania, uh, the percent of non-white students in charter schools in in Pennsylvania is about two-thirds of the student body, whereas that proportion is only uh, about 31% in their government-run schools in Pennsylvania. When I looked at that, I see you know, hey, look, the these, you know, the students of color were not being served for whatever reason in the government-run schools and now they're seeking another alternative. I would say that that's that's a good thing to have more options that people are voluntarily selecting, but opponents of school choice will say, "No, this this is racial segregation." So Phil, would you call this racial segregation? If if so, why if, if not, what is your explanation for why this might differ from from, from segregation in, in, yeah. a, in a real sense?
0: Well, I define racial segregation as legal statutes, policies, and other instruments exercised by the state that force people based on their racial um, categorization to go to one institution or the other, or that bar them from one institution or, or the other. It's not voting with your feet. It's not uh, free movement of choosing between multiple institutions. It's an actual measure of the state to try to force uh, people of a certain race to, uh, to go to the same school or to keep them out of another school. And that's really some of the, uh, the, the worst policies we see in the wake of Brown versus Borden, the South are not uh, connected to vouchers. Rather, what they're doing is they're trying to take the public school system and game it in such ways that you can still have segregation without legally calling it segregation. Uh, so one of the other strategies that emerges in the wake of Brown versus Borden, again, this is very pronounced in Virginia, but adopted elsewhere is the uh, uh, local school districts will start to adopt zoning maps that they'll impose mm-hmm. on, uh, on the city or on the county. And those zoning maps are conveniently uh, almost perfectly aligned with where the white neighborhood is and where the black neighborhood is. Uh, And and oftentimes uh, the black schools, the schools that the black neighborhoods were assigned to were older facilities, things that have not been maintained in years. A lot of them were overcrowded. So one case I looked into was Arlington County, Virginia, which is actually one of the more moderate suburbs of Washington, DC. And uh, I think the average white elementary school around 1960 had between 150 and 200 students. Uh, The black elementary school they crammed over a thousand students into one like mega elementary school that was only to service the black neighborhoods. So there's a clear racial disparity of this and it's all done by the zoning maps, which Mm -hmm. is the second issue. And this is where where vouchers get really interesting. Uh, One of the, the, one of the ways that they use to preserve these zoning maps uh, because if you have a problem, if you have the ability to move between schools or even the ability to move neighborhoods, uh, say a black family moves into a a, a, a historically white neighborhood, uh, they want to keep these the, the, the students of that family out of the historically white school, but they can't do it with the zoning map anymore, but they have another tool in their arsenal, and that is that they cap enrollment. We're only going to accept 155 students because that's the uh, that's the total we have classroom space for. So sorry, even though you moved into this neighborhood, you've crossed the boundary. Uh, You're African-American. You can no longer register for the school because we don't have space for you.
1: It's kind of like Arizona and Florida. They have statewide open enrollment policy. So you're allowed to in theory, you're allowed to pick your government run school and that and. You know, even if you don't live in a district in in, in the district, right, Matthew? I mean, you, yeah. you live yep. in Arizona, and so people are like, "We already have school choice; we can already choose our schools." But it's not real school choice if, you know, all this like Phil said, all the spots are already full. It's like, yeah, well, in theory. Man, you know, if everybody leaves, you can get a spot. But Perfect. if you weren't there to begin with, it's not. Right. You know, it's not actual. You know, school choice with you're, you're not actual actually getting office. a choice.
2: Yeah. Right. yeah, and so the best example of this, you've seen this, Corey, you and I have kind of gone the rounds a few times with folks from Nebraska, right. where they have yeah. school choice because you can go, it's open enrollment, you can go to any government school you want,
0: but you can't In, really. <laughs> yeah. in, in practice, yeah. it
2: doesn't actually work that way.
0: Right, right. Yeah, so they pull in all these tricks to, to, that are designed to circumvent Brown. And it's whether you put zoning in place, you cap enrollment. And then the third thing they started to do uh, is they'd use other excuses or reasons to, uh, to exclude black students. So, uh, again, a prominent case out of Arlington County, Virginia, uh, this is 1957 and 1958. So Brown versus Board is already the law of the land. And the school board has said, OK, we're going to nominally integrate on paper and they actually get a lot of praise from the political left for for saying that they're going to do this they're supposedly the the good southern county but then what happens when it comes time to register students on the first day of classes every year uh, black families start taking their children over to the historically white schools and registering them they said we we meet the zoning regulation uh your your uh, uh enrollment cap has not been met yet so we we need to register and in one instance, there were 30 students that attempted to register for a historically white high school in Arlington County. And I believe it was 27 or 28 out of the 30 were rejected on all these like superficial made up pretexts. Some of them claimed that, that, that they were uh, like the school board would say. Uh, we've evaluated these these children, and they are not psychologically suited to be at this school, or their test scores are not up to standard. But then uh, the NAACP investigates and finds that the black students have higher test scores than the average peer in their incoming class at the same time. So it's it's all a bunch of superficial nonsense. But uh, what what they end up trying to do is they'll say, well, we we'll only admit three or four black students in a high school that has a thousand and say, therefore we're, we're integrated on paper. Uh, we've passed the court test.
1: Hey, hey, Phil, have you seen the court cases that were going on in Connecticut with the government run magnet schools? Um, essentially the rule was you had to have, what was it? At least 20% of students being white or Asian. So what was happening in Connecticut was a lot of, charter schools uh, were reaching that 80% threshold of non-white, non-Asian students. And so even though they had spots available, these schools were not allowed to accept students because they were students of color, because they were non-white, non-Asian students. Right, right. Um, oh. I, I think the court finally, uh, the, the Pacific Legal Institute, Or Pacific Legal Foundation, whatever the name is, they were fighting this for a long time. I I, I think hopefully they were victorious. I don't know if you guys have any more information on that, but I mean, this looks like an explicit case of uh, racial discrimination in, in government schools. So, what do you think we do about it as like a policy implication, Phil? What do we get rid of? Do you think weighted lotteries are Unconstitutional in a sense, or you know, do we just allow for free choice? do we do we have any type of mechanisms in place to to try to create more racially integrated schools? what What is your big takeaway of a policy implication of how we move forward?
0: Well, this is the old Milton Friedman point. Uh, just to go back to to what he is saying in the wake of Brown versus board, If you allow competition in schools, And you have some basic rules, basic guidelines that say that uh, schools receiving public funding, whether they're public or private uh, institutions, are not allowed to racially discriminate. Uh, People will vote with their feet. And if we use moral suasion to demonstrate the case that segregation is wrong, the long run outcome of that will be more people moving toward the integrated schools. Uh, The uh, the, the people that want segregation will become fewer and fewer and fewer in number, basically because they're outcompeted. Uh, so, yeah, there, there are ways that they try to hold on to segregation using uh, these uh, the, these surreptitious, not officially racially segregated, but they're, they're, they're kind of backdoor ways to circumvent Brown. And these are popping up all over the South. And this is why by the late 1950s and early 1960s, the hardline segregationists see vouchers as like an existential threat to their new scheme. Well,
1: and, and – um... I mean, we already have those laws on the books, right? Like private schools that accept public funds aren't aren't able to discriminate on the basis of race. From everything that I've seen, I've talked to a couple of constitutional lawyers on this from Institute for Justice, and we talked a lot about this, and they said, no, it, the lay of the land, if a private school, even, even if it wasn't receiving public funds, and even if they did want to lose their tax-exempt status, they would still have to make a case to the court as to why under free exercise of religion, they would have to discriminate on the basis of race, but no, no private school is going to do that. No private school has done that. So the law of the land today, as it is from my read of it and a couple of constitutional lawyers read of it is that you cannot, even if you're not accepting public dollars, if you're a private, private school, you cannot (laughs) discriminate on the basis of race. So a lot of this, uh, argument coming from the other side seems to be like it, it seems pretty disingenuous yeah. to say, "Oh, well, you know, school choice might lead to racial segregation." And almost sometimes they actually try to imply that schools will discriminate based on race, such as this this report here at the Heckinger report. Uh, I got them to issue a little bit of a correction, but this was by right. Bruce Baker and Dr. Preston Green. Uh, they said that. Some people might be concerned about um, uh, private schools that might discriminate in admissions other or other treatment on the basis of sexual orientation or even race. So they're essentially, I mean, they were careful in how they worded this here and that they said, well, some people might be concerned. Well, of course you you can be concerned about something that isn't even a uh, a, a legal possibility of course someone could be concerned about I can be concerned about a million different things that are ne- that are not going to happen or that are illegal at the moment but this just seems extremely misleading here and they they issued a clarification after I pushed back on social media and through email um, but the authors of this piece got actually pretty they actually got pretty mad at heckinger for "Quote unquote caving in to wow. to right leaning uh, groups or libertarian groups, which look don't say don't 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 imply that private schools accepting voucher funding are going to discriminate on the basis of race when there's absolutely zero evidence of zero private schools currently doing that today who who who, who uh, uh, participate in voucher programs. So this is just completely." Um, ridiculous for them to include this. I, I think they should have taken that sentence out, but at least they added a a, a, a clarification, clarification
0: note, mm-hmm. pretty much
1: showing, uh, oops, we messed up.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and just to echo that point, this has been the law of the land since at least uh, the early 1960s court cases. And one of the key ones, so we always hear the case about Prince Edward County, Virginia, which is a, um, um, a rural county outside of Richmond, uh, has a very large black population. And what happened in, in the wake of Brown versus Board is they were one of these counties that shut down their public school system to avoid integration. And part of the strategy was they thought that they're gonna shut down the public school system, but they're gonna create an, a a, a, um, a private white school for all the children that are excluded. Black, black students are basically without an education. Uh, they just cut them off. So it's a really horrendous policy. And what Prince Edward County thought they were going to do is uh, they said, well, maybe we can go over to the state of Virginia and we'll request voucher funding for all the white students that go to our private academy. Uh, So they're trying to take advantage of this program. Well, that gets a lawsuit against it. And in 1961, uh, the federal uh, judge that's reviewing the suit says, wait a minute, the statute book that's on uh, the, the statute that's on the books permitting these voucher-like tuition grant mechanisms says that this is to establish choice in education. You, Prince Edward County, by shutting your public school system and trying to divert the money over to a single private white institution have denied those children choice. Therefore, you are permanently barred from um, accessing the voucher money. So this is 1961. This is the first in a long set of of uh, court decisions that basically makes it illegal for private institutions uh to discriminate on the basis of race. Is is and, this
1: is this the is it section 1981 is that what you were quoting or is this a different court case that I uh, gonna... it's a different. So it's
0: uh, Griffith versus Prince Edward County is the uh Supreme Court iteration of it that comes in 1964. Yeah. 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 So it's a major Supreme Court case that knocks down discrimination in education. But it's the 1961 district court ruling that basically bars the county from even having access to anything like a voucher because it's illegally discriminating. So uh, that's what sets it all in motion. The other fun thing about the story is you go back and look at the amicus briefs that are filed in favor of -hmm. the integrationist side that are filed in favor of the of the Griffith family. Uh, they're all coming out of a school voucher group based in St. Louis, a uh, pro-voucher group. It's the, I think it's the Center for Educational Freedom, uh, which was a Catholic uh, yeah. oriented, um, uh, integrationist group that was based predominantly in the Midwest uh, and um, headed by a a priest. At Marquette University. It's uh, Father uh, Virgil Bloom, who turns out to be one of these major early voucher advocates. He's like a friend of Milton Friedman. Uh, well, Bloom is also a devout integrationist. He uh, uh, is vehemently opposed to segregation. So he uses his organization. They hire a team of lawyers that writes an amicus brief uh, explicitly arguing to the federal courts. This is if we have a voucher system in place, uh, we need guarantees that this voucher is barred. From being used at segregated institutions, uh, because that's not what we're going for. So it's a clear, clear record. The other thing that's going on at this time, and this is where uh, where your friends at uh, at the NEA and AFT and all the teachers unions are going to Best friends.
1: Them. Oh yeah, uh,
0: yeah. Randy Weingarten has been one of the uh, the major promoters of this theory. Uh, well, let's look at what the teachers unions were doing in the 1950s and 60s. They were against vouchers back then, just as they are today. But the southern state chapters were also aligned with the hardline segregationists, and again, we find direct evidence in, uh, of this in Virginia. So, in uh, in late 1959, as the voucher debate is is breaking up massive resistance, it's swaying the moderates uh, against the hardliners and Harry birds faction. What do you think the Virginia Education Association does? The 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 state white teachers union chapter of the NEA. Well, what? <laughs>
1: Oh, just to jump in, what's the name of that one? Who's who's like the big white supremacist today? Um, who's like banned from the EU? What what is his name? Um so it's not Spen- Are you talking about Spencer? Spencer- yeah, Richard yeah, Spencer. Richard. Yeah. Richard Spencer? Hold on.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so he opposes private school choice for, for sure, some, yeah. some of the same <laughs> reasons. Um, yeah, hold on. Here I, I'm pulling up the tweet real quick because this happened earlier this uh this year. Um, because it was this, someone similarly claiming that you know school choice, if you if you support school choice, you're somehow racist. In which I replied, "Ah, that's too big." Here it is. He he argued, uh, "School choice is a terrible idea, and should be crushed." Again, this is Richard Spencer saying this. He said. It would destroy good schools, and I wonder what he means by that. I don't. What's a good school? Why? Why would allowing <laughs> low-income families to to access private schools? Because other people are allowed to access private schools, you know. And today, if you have enough money, you can access the private school. But Richard is somehow, you know, hinting that you know letting more people in who wouldn't have otherwise been able to afford it. Uh, would crush and destroy good schools. What, what's your take on that, Phil?
0: So he is regurgitating the exact same argument that the hardline racist white supremacist segre- segregationists used in the 1950s against Brown versus Board, and then some of the voucher mechanisms that emerged in his wake. Uh, I mean, it's almost word for word. Again, returning to the uh, the cases in Virginia, which is again the hub of all of this uh, this back and forth battle. There is a um, an attorney that uh, is basically like the go-to guy, if you're a school district in Virginia and you want to maintain segregation against Brown versus Board, you hired this attorney. So a guy by the name of John S. Battle Jr. He's the son of a former governor, so really deeply em- enmeshed in the, uh, uh, the political class uh, on the segregationist side. And in 1959, when all of these court decisions are coming down against the segregationists, he's hired by the school district in Charlottesville, Virginia, one of the, uh, the the locuses of the NAACP lawsuits, to defend them, and his uh, defense strategy comes up that he comes up with is a, is to attack school vouchers. So uh, he writes this lengthy memorandum uh, on behalf of the uh, the, the white supremacists and the school board that says if we allow choice. In our educational institutions, we allow uh, parents of students to pick which schools they register at or choose to go to a private school. If we allow them to have any sort of of voucher mechanism or public uh, mobility between existing public schools, Hmm. we're going to create a situation. The result says, I'm quoting, the Negro engulfment of our white schools. Wow.
1: Absolutely ridiculous. And –
0: and same
1: same uh, argument earlier that, that's the quote i was thinking of that that you had shared in that uh 1950s article it's just completely uh ridiculous for anyone to say that even in the 1950s in my opinion uh or that's just, just a fact um but also i just found another uh richard spencer quote against uh school choice from 2017 here it is he also I originally thought that Richard Spencer was was saying that school choice would destroy government schools because that's what I often hear that you know if people can choose their schools they'll leave the crappy schools the government schools if if, if they're you know not serving their needs and this would destroy government schools but no it, it actually turned out looking at other tweets from Richard Spencer that he actually meant that school choice would destroy the private schools that's uh, that's that's the argument that's not heard as much but he's saying the quiet part out loud here in 2017 (laughs) that school choice potentially allows dumb students to attend successful private schools and so you know a lot of the people trying to say that you know school that school people who support school choice are evil well look you you the people who oppose school choice You've got Richard Spencer on your side, one of the people who you do not want on your side. Um, This is 2017. This isn't 1955. Exactly. Right, right.
2: Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, Corey, good, uh, perfect way to put it. He said the quiet part out loud, right? Like this
1: this is. Well, a a lot of people who argue against school choice in general just think that low income families just. Aren't smart enough to you know to choose their own schools, which is absolutely ridiculous. It's an idea yeah. that that really ticks me off. It ticks off a lot of my Twitter followers whenever I you know quote tweet people because most people won't say this 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 you know the 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 ridiculous know, this crazy argument and this elitist argument that for whatever reason people who just don't have a lot of money are either dumb, like Richard yeah. Spencer is saying right here, or or just that the parents either don't care about their kids or that they just uh aren't smart enough to make good schooling decisions for their own well, kids and that's just that's a that video approach yeah that that a
2: video you shared a while ago um it was only i don't know maybe three or four weeks ago uh we all know what happened there was this lady speaking to a some government body i don't know um she, it, and i think it was here in arizona actually she it said was. something like she said something like we all know what happens when you give poor people ch- a choice yeah, and, and like there were a couple of people, I don't know if you noticed this, it seemed like in the crowd that were like, wait, what, <laughs> what did she just say? She just said that we can't give poor people a choice, uh, but this is, this is the sentiment, right? Yeah.
1: yeah. I'm trying to find it. This was, um, I'm trying to remember what I said in the tweet.
0: Um, Matt
2: Lattner, uh posted it too. His might be easier to find. But, yeah,
0: and it, it's a recurring historical theme it's the choice is what these people fear because they, they fear that uh, that people will choose differently than segregation uh, yeah people will reject segregation uh which was the same thing that happened back in the 50s and 60s same thing that spencer is arguing today yep and here and here's
1: this quote from this lady i wish i could play the video <laughs> um, but i have i don't have it downloaded i haven't ready but her money quote that she says here and she's getting into just for context, she's getting into a conversation about accountability of voucher schools that, you know, um, how are we going to know that this taxpayer money is being spent wisely? My response is that well, parents are holding these schools accountable, top-down accountability mechanisms from the government aren't actual forms of real accountability for schools. You have to be able to vote with your feet to hold schools accountable. But she says, Everybody knows what happens when poor people are given a choice, right? <laughs> uh, and the guy behind her is like, looking at her! Like, you kidding me?" Yeah. <laughs> um, and everybody else kind of this blew up on my Twitter: one hundred and seventy-four, hundred point five thousand views. Uh, and I think most people in society understand that this type of sentiment is absolutely abhorrent adhor- and and completely elitist and you know yep. most people this just doesn't, doesn't fly for most people you're not going to convince people with this rhetoric uh, you're just going to look like a bigot essentially and so i'm glad when people say these things out loud because then yeah, you can show yeah. like look, look this is why people oppose school choice and you know don't be like this person right that's that's the takeaway here give everybody a chance give everybody the choice to choose their schools no one should you know, uh, be residentially assigned to a school that's not working for them and no one should have to force, be forced to send their kids to a school that's not working for them.
0: Yeah, yep. right. I think what's astounding, you have this argument, it's still being used today and it's identical to what was being used in the 1950s and 60s by the segregationists. So, so to flip the narrative a little bit, mm-hmm. here they are charging us with uh, implementing a policy that's supposedly rooted in segregation. No, it's quite the opposite. Uh, they're actually using an anti-choice argument that was common in the 1950s and 60s. 1964, the Virginia chapter of the NEA released an internal memorandum to all of its, um, its constituents. It's a white majority. It's an all-white labor union at that point. And the memorandum said, uh, we've seen news stories and reports and interviews with parents that are taking advantage of this ability to, uh, to switch schools both public and private. And they're all saying that they're switching schools for different reasons besides avoiding integration. They're all saying they're switching schools because they want their kids to go to a better school. Some are even moving from segregated schools to integrated schools uh, to move their kids away from uh, this race establishment. And the, uh, the VEA memo that they send out to all their teachers says uh, we need to abolish and bar school choice because people are using it for the wrong reason. The only permissible reason that they should be able to use it is to avoid integration in the schools. So it's this, this like hyper racist, alliance. Wow, wow. Like, the teachers' union and and these 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 hardline segregationists, and and this has been almost entirely omitted from this type of history that the other side is arguing at the moment.
1: And you have all the receipts for this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, I want to ask you and put it on record to, to share all these things. I'll try to help you compile yeah. all this stuff and, and either, just maybe one of the outlets, maybe, maybe on my Facebook, uh, just for listeners. And I know, I know you have the receipts. Uh, I've, I've seen all of these articles that you've shared. So I'll try to uh, give these to listeners as well. I know listeners will want to see this evidence of this ridiculous and racist history uh, of segregationists. Uh, actually opposing school choice which is you know totally opposite of what you hear in the media today and it's something it's it's the other side of the story that more people need to feel comfortable talking about i'm glad phil magnus has shown a spotlight on this unlike anyone else most historians don't i i don't i don't know do you know of any other historians who have you know kind of told this side of the story are you are you one of the only or the, the i like doing
0: first and that this was uh you know I, I spent months in archives uh especially in virginia i looked at a few other states but uh digging through these old memoranda of pta meetings and uh and school board officials and you just keep finding over and over again it's the uh, the white teachers unions and the segregationists that have formed kind of like this alliance to block school choice because they see it's an ex- existential threat to maintaining segregation after Brown. They see it as this thing that's going to lead to, as they they quote, the Negro engulfment of white schools.
2: <laughs> it's just crazy to me. Like, I, I can't even uh... – that that quote right there, yeah, that was <laughs> that one right there that Corey will definitely want to have a receipt for so he can share that. But that this kind of stuff, that history, Phil, because you're you know I mean we've all said it here uh, during the conversation, the the things that actually happened, the things that were actually said by segregationists who opposed school choice those are the same things that current school choice advocates are accused of believing, promoting, but, but the, but the facts are, the fact is that those are things that it's almost like they're just drawing on their own history. Right. Well, well, check this out. Check check
1: this out. Everybody's seen this. The biggest thing in the news on education, you know, this week is this Harvard magazine article by Aaron O'Donnell highlighting the work of, Uh, Harvard law professor Elizabeth Bartholet, who has a longer form version published in the Arizona Law Review, about 80 pages on the Mm -hmm. apparent risks of homeschooling. And one of the arguments that she makes in this Harvard Magazine article, which, again, this article has gotten a ton of pushback. We've talked about it on a different podcast. But one of Bartholet's arguments is that, um, you know, homeschoolers, there might be a lot of homeschoolers who are white supremacists, essentially, and that's why we need to have a presumptive ban on the practice of homeschooling. Wow. Uh, Phil, Phil, just to get a quick uh, reaction out of you, what do you what do you think about that and maybe how it relates to the school choice arguments or, yeah. or,
0: or, or the school I mean, choice? It, again, it's an inversion of history. Uh, if you go back to uh, even before Brown versus Board, go back to the 1920s or the 1880s. Uh, the restrictive measures of the public school movement, the 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 laws that are adopted to try to force everyone into a public school on the basis that only the state can educate them, are replete with racism, and a lot of it's uh, it's racism against immigrants, or it's xenophobia. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have two instances of this: it's the uh, the Blaine Amendments that emerge in the 1870s and 1880s. These are are, are state constitutional amendments that bar. uh, Uh, varying degrees of funding to go to religious institutions or that bar religious institutions from educating outright. Uh, These are mostly done because the religious schools at the time were predominantly Catholic and they serviced immigrant communities, immigrants from mostly southern and eastern Europe that were seen as as, uh, like a different class of people. Um,
1: do do you do you have any backstory on? Um, I've I've heard and I've seen a couple of books citing that the KKK, yeah. you know, was in support of the Blaine Amendments and even this uh, this uh, push in Oregon to outlaw private education altogether in 1922. And I think they actually uh, succeeded in 1922, and the U.S. Supreme Court didn't even turn it over until 1925, uh, and found that ridiculous. Uh, law unconstitutionally, thankfully, uh, in which the court said that the child is not the mere creature of the state. But do you have any additional context about the KKK actually fighting?
0: um, Especially the second iteration of the Ku Klux Klan, this is the one that pops up after 1916, uh, is also vehemently anti-Catholic. So they are seeing private Catholic schools as the threat uh, as, a, as a further kind of like mongrelization of society. And they use this horrendously discriminatory, bigoted language. Uh, so it, it, that argument comes up, and it also explains why 30 and 40 years later, the real leaders of the school choice movement are private Catholic schools. It's, it's mm-hmm. Father Bloom at Marquette mm-hmm. who was arguing for school choice and against segregation uh, before the United States Supreme Court in his amicus brief. It's, a, it's people that are, uh, are, are seeing a century of existing discrimination against private schools that's been entrenched in the laws up until that point, and then, they, then you have this disruptive event uh, taking place going after segregation after the wake of Brown versus Board. So they really kick into gear after that. And one of the rallying calls of the school choice movement in the in the 1960s and early 70s in particular is that they see themselves as on the side of Brown versus Board. They want education further deregulated, further moved away from the state so mm-hmm. that people can have the choice to get religious education if they want, uh, in addition to integrated education.
1: Hmm. Well, in, in the U.S., I mean, in, in the early days of the government schooling, uh, you know, movement, uh, it, the schools were essentially de facto Protestant, right? Yeah. I mean, they just didn't want it to be Catholic. They didn't want those you know, the immigrants, the Catholic right. immigrants, uh, and they wanted to teach them to be good Protestant Americans in their view. I think that's, again, a lot of the reason why Catholics uh, support the school choice movement as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, very
1: mm. much so so look it looks yeah, sure. like we're getting super close uh, I <laughs> bill I know you told me this before and I told you we'd do it around 45 minutes but we've had some you know interesting conversations and we're super happy yep. to have you it's almost two yep. o'clock Eastern time and I know you have a, another call at 2 p.m. so I want to say thank you so much for all the work that you do thank you for doing uh you know uh, this chapter in this new book coming out, pre-order on Amazon, only twenty four ninety five. Take on the biggest school choice myths, uh, right. co-edited by myself and Neil McCluskey. Phil, Phil Magnus has an amazing chapter on the myth that school choice is somehow rooted in 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 uh, racist sentiments. And Phil Magnus tells the other side of the story, the truth of the story. Um, and again, thank you so much for Absolutely. for for being on our show and you have any other you know, final concluding thoughts or maybe a, a shout out for uh, where people can find some of your work? Yeah, yeah. where can we find you?
0: So AIER.org, uh, which is American Institute for Economic Research. And I've written a, a few shorter pieces on school choice and also how it how it relates to the history of segregation there. Um, but that's where most of my commentary comes up. I also have a, a personal homepage. Uh, philmagnus.com, where I post some documents and, and images of some of the material that I've found. Uh, but yeah, I'd urge you to check that out, uh, check out the article in the forthcoming book. And uh, thanks again for a great conversation. Great. Thanks, Phil. All right. Take cool. care. Have
1: a good one, everybody. Have a great Thank one, you. Phil. Thank you.
0: Cool. Thank you for listening. You can find EFI online at efinstitute.org on Twitter at EF underscore Institute and on Facebook at Educational Freedom Institute.